You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Cryptojacking from Hanoi. Dormant networks rise again for no easily discernible reason, but it doesn't look good. A gang is hitting German victims with a Gutkit banking trojan and sometimes mixing it up with a R-Evil ransomware payload. Conti ransomware hits an IoT chipmaker. SCOTUS reviews the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. A few predictions for 2021. Ben Yellen on Congress passing an IoT security bill. Our guest is Stephen Harvey from BitSight, who's tracking the correlation between companies with strong cybersecurity and financial success. And it may be back to school tomorrow in Baltimore County. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. Vietnamese threat actors have returned to the news. Over the long weekend, Trend Micro researchers described a recently discovered macOS backdoor they believe is associated with Hanoi's Ocean Lotus Group. And the Microsoft 365 Defender Threat Intelligence team has found the group they track with Redmond's customary metallic name as Bismuth, and which they associate with Ocean Lotus, APT32, actively deploying a Monero miner against its victims. The development is interesting. North Korea's Lazarus Group has long been an outlier among state-directed threat actors, in that financial gain was a major objective. It appears that Vietnam's services may be headed down the same path. Spam House has found a suspicious awakening. 52 dormant networks based in North America suddenly became active over the period of only a few days. All are physically hosted in Greater New York. While inactive networks do come back to life from time to time, The researchers find it suspicious that so many should re-emerge essentially simultaneously without having any obvious mutual connections. Each of the Revenant networks was announced by a different autonomous system number, a different ASN, and those ASNs are themselves Revenants, silent for some time. Spam House isn't certain what's going on, but it doesn't look good, and it advises all to be wary of these no longer quiescent networks. A significant criminal campaign is underway against German internet users. Malwarebytes finds the campaign unusual in that the criminals are serving either the Gutkit banking trojan or R-Evil, also known as Sodinokibi, ransomware. As is typical, in this case, an infection begins with phishing. The payload is usually Gutkit, 
but they've observed a smaller number of R-Evil infections. Malwarebytes explains, quote, The threat actors behind this campaign are using a very clever loader that performs a number of steps to evade detection. Given that the payload is stored within the registry under a randomly named key, many security products will not be able to detect and remove it. However, the biggest surprise here is to see this loader serve our evil ransomware in some instances. We were able to reproduce this flow in our lab once, but most of the time we saw a goot kit. End quote. Industrial Internet of Things chipmaker Advantech has confirmed reports by Bleeping Computer and others that Advantech has been the victim of ransomware. The strain is Conti, and the criminals stole data that Advantech describes as confidential but low value. The attackers appear to have delivered their ransom demand on November 21st. They began leaking data on November 26th. The criminals are making a big ask. They want Advantech to pay them 750 bitcoin, or about 12,600,000 U.S. dollars. If they're paid, they say they'll decrypt all affected data and remove any data they've stolen from their servers. Says they. The hoods aren't necessarily promise keepers. Advantech says it's largely restored its operations, but we've not heard what their plans are with respect to the ransom demand. The U.S. Supreme Court yesterday heard arguments in a case challenging broad interpretation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. At issue in the case, Van Buren v. United States is, as SCOTUS blog puts it, quote, whether a person who is authorized to access information on a computer for certain purposes violates Section 1030A2 of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act if he accesses the same information for an improper purpose, end quote. These deliberations take time, but the Wall Street Journal says a decision is likely to come in June. Netrix has offered some predictions for 2021, most of which represent reasonable extrapolations of trends that have developed over 2020. The increase of ransomware, a shift in criminals' interest towards service providers, cloud misconfigurations will account for a significant fraction of data breaches, regulatory compliance and insurance combining to drive organizations toward best practices, and pandemic-induced changes in the workplace will have a delayed effect on security. Two of their predictions strike us as being at least as normative as they are predictive. Organizations will be driven by calculations of risk and value in managing their cybersecurity posture and investment. Digital Shadows also foresees more aggressive extortion by criminals, but they add a prediction that distributed denial-of-service attacks will be used more often to hold organizations for ransom. Blind spots that accompany the shift toward remote work will be exploited in social engineering, and the social engineers' lures will continue to dangle fishbait cut from current events to lure the unwary. Criminal markets will continue to thrive and to behave like markets, even as law enforcement seeks to crack down on them. Both the cops and the criminals will enjoy some success, that is, and if you bet on form, that seems about right. And finally, sorry kids, it's back to Zoom for you, at least if you're up there in Baltimore County. The Baltimore Sun reports that Baltimore County Public Schools expect to be sufficiently recovered from the ransomware attack they sustained last week to be able to resume instruction tomorrow. The school district has been tight-lipped about details, but they indicate that they have a process in place for bringing the students and teachers back online. The ransom demand is unknown, but it's believed likely to be high. 
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. I suppose that if I make the claim that companies with good cybersecurity practices are generally more successful overall, with correlated financial success, you'd likely respond with, yeah, that that makes sense. Stephen Harvey is CEO at security ratings firm BitSight, and his team has been exploring that very issue to see how much of a correlation, if any, there is between well-performing companies with strong cybersecurity and financial success. The step we've taken, and we, we, we announced this about two weeks ago, was to actually work with an index provider, a company called Selective, which is one of the leading index providers that are based out of Germany, to create a series of indices in which they took out the low-performing BitSite-rated companies and focused the index on high-performing BitSite-rated companies. And what they came back with was really exciting. It was a demonstration, a empirical demonstration that the uh, when you look back over time, the value of highly rated companies from a cybersecurity perspective outperform from evaluation the market. So the indices that uh, that they created outperform the benchmarks by anywhere from one and a half to seven percent. And seven percent in finance is a huge outperformance. Hmm. You know, there's that old saying that, you know, correlation is not causation. So so how do you weigh in, you know, the various factors that may be responsible for these companies outperforming their peers? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I think it's a combination of things, Dave. One is obviously a company with a high cybersecurity rating is going to have less breaches. 
you know, there is uh, there, there's a, a huge multiplier effect when you look at low-rated companies in terms of the amount of breaches that they are likely to have, and and that that does correlate directly to potential value. Another area that that is getting the attention of directors is the notion that cybersecurity is another component of governance. And as you look at the governance standards of a company, that cybersecurity is one of the key pillars that should be assessed as part of that review. And what we're seeing actually is a very high demand at the moment from boards to hire CISOs directly to the board or to start creating a subcommittee focused on cybersecurity because of the, the, the meaningful impact of cybersecurity to the company, but also because of this trend towards governance. What are your recommendations for folks who want to explore this, who want to find out how this might apply to, uh, to how they're approaching cybersecurity? I would suggest people take a look at the, the indices that were rolled out. This was made public, and Selective are actually now marketing these uh, indices to investment managers with the idea that they're, they're going to start investing in an index that's tilted towards companies that perform well from a cybersecurity background with a proven outperformance in the backtesting that Selective have done. And I think that's, that, that can be found on, on our website or Selective's. So, you know, this is really groundbreaking. And I, again, I use the word empirical. It's empirical evidence that, that there is a correlation here. That's Stephen Harvey from BitSight. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast, which if you have not yet checked out, what are you waiting for? It's a good show. It's a great show. <laughs> ben, uh, great to have you back. Um, an interesting article from uh, CyberScoop. This is written by Tim Starks, uh, and it's titled, After Years of Work, Congress Passes Internet of Things Cybersecurity Bill, and It's Kind of a Big Deal. What's going on here, Ben? It is kind of a big deal. I mean, first of all, it's a big deal when Congress passes anything. So, right. you know, let's let's, <laughs> right, exactly. let's raise our glass to that. Yeah, uh, that's not what we sent them to Washington to do, is it? No, <laughs> they should be, you know, puffing their chest at a high-profile congressional <laughs> hearing about something insignificant, not actually right, doing right. things to address problems. Uh, so, yeah, um, you know, I think we should uh, be happy that they passed something in the first place, regardless of what it is. The substance yeah. of law uh, is is really interesting. It is a bill that sets a baseline for the Internet of Things. Um, so these Internet-connected devices that you have to have a baseline level of security in order to contract with the federal government. 
Uh, and the federal government kind of does this uh, in a lot of different contexts to try and set minimal standards for federal contracting in hopes that companies, you know, in trying to obtain these federal contracts will adopt these practices more broadly. And they're also, as part of this law, going to encourage vulnerability disclosure policies um, so that organizations can work with experts, security researchers, to fix any software flaws that might arise. So the story of how this bill came into uh, being enacted, it was a three-year effort, started in 2017, Hmm. uh, ran into some opposition from the United States Chamber of Commerce because they thought this might be too much of a burden on particularly small businesses. And I don't know if you've heard, but the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has some sway uh, in the United States Congress. Sure. Um, But there were some enterprising lawmakers in both the House and the Senate. This was a bipartisan effort. They were able to neutralize the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to get them to not oppose the bill, even if they were uh, directly supporting it. And uh, a couple of uh, legislators were able to get it across the finish line. The House passed its version in September, and the Senate uh, just agreed to it by unanimous consent. And to talk about you know how bipartisan this was, this is a bill that was drafted in part by Representative Robin Kelly, uh, who is a very progressive Chicago Democrat, and was co-sponsored uh, at least uh, in the last year or so by Mark Meadows, who is now President Trump's uh, chief of staff. And she was able uh, the two of them were able to work with one another to get this done. So this is sort of the rare uh, cybersecurity policy victory uh, that's certainly worthy of, of celebration. Hmm. So, I mean, is the general notion here that if we require this in, in government contracting, that it'll uh, it'll be in the company's best interest to have that sort of, you know, sprinkled out throughout all of their products, that it'll make its way into the, the consumer and B2B space as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the the federal government has done this with things like Energy Star ratings. You want to, you know, uh, encourage companies to produce things that are energy efficient. So you require, you know, in all government contracting that companies that want to work with the federal government institute those types of policies. And yeah, the idea is, um, you know, you give them some incentive to adopt uh, safer cybersecurity practices for IoT, uh, then you know these are going to become more widely adopted, and it's going to affect. It's going. It's going to have downstream effects for organizations that you know aren't interested in uh, federal government contracts. So you know, in some ways, you could see this as a small s- step because it only applies in the relatively limited world of um, you know federal procurement. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it sort of trickles down uh, into the industry the way it's it's done in other contexts. How interesting that. Um you know, cybersecurity seems to consistently be one of the few areas that can get bipartisan support and actually move things through the the process. You know, these these gears that are all full of sand right now in, in Congress, uh, somehow these these seem to make it through. Yeah, you know, I'm very cynical about these things. I think I always hope that lawmakers can make progress before things get polarized. Um, you know, if you have a really polarizing figure who comes out in support of something that might lead the other side to be against it. Mm. Uh, so for the purpose of cybersecurity, it's kind of better for these things to happen under the radar, um, you know, where it's not like there's a, a major push by President Trump to get this enacted into law, because that might engender some opposition among mm. congressional Democrats. I right, think just kinda, because it's him. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and we all yeah. have those tendencies. I mean, sure. you know, if it's a person that we don't like proposing something, we're naturally going to want to oppose it. So I think, you know, 
What's been good about cybersecurity policymaking is it has kind of gone under the radar. Um, it's avoided some of these higher uh, profile political battles that have ground Congress to a halt. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Ben Yellen, again, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. We'll leave the light on for you. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.